What's up, guys? I uh, hope you're having a great week. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Atlantic 10 Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Basil. And with me today is Chris Pyle, Jack Milko, and Michael Bergman. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. What's, what's up? Ready to talk Dayton Hoops. All right. And, you know, so today I've got, you know, three great analysts for A10 Talk. Uh, you guys got to follow all these guys on Twitter. Uh, make sure to keep up with everything they're doing. So today we're talking about Dayton, UMass, and of course the number one favorite uh, for the 2021-22 season in the A10, St. Bonaventure. Uh, first up, let's talk a little Dayton. During media media days uh, last week, I feel like Dayton was kind of entering this season with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. I think they're ranked fifth in the preseason poll, and some of the Dayton players, you know, felt like that, that, like that was kind of a disrespectful ranking. I mean, do you kind of agree? Do you think, you know, there's something about this Dayton roster that, you know, some of the analysts just haven't gotten a chance to see yet? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is the, the only guys that are going to know how good they are, are, is the team themselves, right? Like they, like no one else really knows what to expect from them. Cause it's like a completely different team. I mean, you know, a lot of the freshmen that were there last year with Zimi and uh, RJ and uh, Amzil, Kobe Braille, like those guys, but like everyone else is a complete unknown to the rest of the league. Whereas like, and even myself too, cause like the exhibition was last night and, or on Monday night. And I didn't really, we didn't get to see it. it I had to listen to it on the radio and we don't really know what happened other than it was like a supposedly a close loss to West Virginia in the secret scrimmage. So on paper, yeah, it looks like a very talented team, but we have no idea what it looks like on the floor in like a real game. So, I mean, I get it as to why they're fifth considering the teams above them. Like we know what St. Bonaventure is. We know what Richmond is at the time before Perkins injury. We knew what St. Louis was VCU had a pretty, we had a pretty decent idea too. So like, I get it. Um, but I also understand the players being like, what the heck, you know? Yeah. And you talk about, you know, we really don't know what this Dayton team is capable of maybe in the best way possible, considering the fact that Dayton might have the best incoming recruiting class uh, in the Atlantic 10 this season. I mean, would you, would you say that's a, a reach? Well, no. Cause I mean, just the, just the ranking itself uh, was number one, but you know, we are really excited about this freshman class and considering Anthony Grant has already proven that he's a very, very good recruiter with who he's had already in the past with this team. Um, as far as like a freshman class, we, we are really excited about it. And it really all, it all starts with uh, Deron Holmes being a top uh, 50 recruit in the nation. You know um, he's probably going to start night one. And then, you know, everyone knows who Scoochie Smith was. If you follow the A-10 having his brother, like, you know, you expect a lot of things out of that. Caleb Washington is another guy who's like a top 100, 110 recruit. Uh, and then Lynn Greer, which everyone knows uh, his dad who played at Temple and was awesome. So they expect a lot out of that too. So really, I, I mean, when I look at recruits, I really don't evaluate them until we see them for like all four years. And what I mean by that is, you know, you really don't know what you have. I mean, you have a decent idea, but you really don't know what they, what, what you have until you see like their ceiling. 
you know, um, cause I've seen some pretty bad Dayton recruiting classes and, um, you know, you get excited about them coming in, you see like some flashes of excellence. And then by the time you get to like their junior year, or even whenever they leave, if they leave the program in their sophomore or junior year, you're like, Oh, that was it. Okay. We can move on, you know? And from what I understand, from what I've heard from the team, all the interviews, all the podcasts, everything about this recruiting class, uh, it, they're very, very talented bunch. And so, you know, let's, let's kind of get into some of these new recruits, specifically uh, Deron Holmes and Malachi Smith. You, you mentioned uh, Malachi's older brother, Scoochie Smith, and saying uh, whether or not people are familiar with him. I feel like I'm pretty familiar with uh, Scoochie Smith, considering, you know, him and his brother Malachi are Bronx natives. And every Dayton, every time Dayton was an away team during uh, Scoochie's time at Dayton, I mean, he would sell out Rose Hill Gym. I mean, you know, with Kyle Neptune coming into uh, Coach Fordham, I feel like one of my one of my biggest goals that I think Fordham should set for themselves is stop losing top Bronx recruits to to Dayton. And so, you know, with Malachi, do you do you see a lot of his brother in him? I mean, have you gotten a chance to really, you know, check out any any game tape with him at all? Uh, I've seen a little bit, and I've heard a little bit of like different scouting reports um, on him. And what's really interesting is like he is like the opposite of Scucci. Uh, it is really interesting. Uh, if you remember Scucci, he was kind of more of like a finesse player. Like he could get to the rim, like he can break your ankles, like he can fake you out and post and just like walk down the court and just put up a beautiful jump shot. You know, like we, we, we say he has wheelbarrow balls for, for a reason. Right. But with Malachi Smith, he is like a rough and tumbler. Like he'll get to the rim, but he's looking for contact. Like he is going to be like a workhorse, like a bull kind of like, kind of like reminds me of like Trey Landers, just not the size, you know, Trey was always looking for, you know, he was like the heart. He's the guy that wore the hard hat on the floor. Right. And that's kind of what I've heard and seen so far from Malachi Smith. So that's something to look for uh, going into this season. And Deron Holmes, I mean, could you just kind of talk about what you've seen from him so far, whether that be, you know, high school film or anything that you might have heard that was exciting during that secret scrimmage? Yeah. Um, so pretty much what I've seen from him and understood about him is the dude is he is the modern day version of a center, like a, like a, he's not like the old, like, you know, like Pau Gasol's kind of guys that are just like trees down low. Like he's like a stretch four. Like, yeah, that that's exactly it right there. Like he could be a stretch four. he's huge. Um, super athletic. Uh, he's gonna, he can shoot, um, from the outside. The sky's the limit for this guy, like draft, like draft pick style in a couple years, kind of, kind of kid. He's probably going to start night one from what I've seen in the exhibition and just like seeing him in like practices and stuff. Like he looks like the biggest guy on the roster and he's super athletic. Um, really excited about that kid. I mean, I, I'm also very excited about Duran. I think over the next four years, Dayton might be the most well-equipped a 10 team to be kind of a uh, a consistent, not only, you know, a 10, a consistent favorite to maybe win the a 10 championship over the next three to four years, but maybe even get a couple uh, spots in the NCAA tournament. And so kind of moving on to specifically this season, looking at Dayton's non-conference schedule, I feel like they did a pretty good job. 
pulling in some really, you know, strong non-conference opponents. Is there any game on their non-conference schedule that catches that catches your eye? Well, there's kind of there's a couple. There's a couple really good non-conference opponents. Basically, the fir- their first test is going to be Miami. They play in Orlando for a Thanksgiving tournament. Um, if they win that game, they could play Kansas, which is pretty much a dream thinking about that Maui final. So that would, that would be like number one, if they get to play Kansas, but if they do not like looking further down the schedule, I personally think um, their biggest test is probably going to be Virginia tech at home. Um, we have not had a team because Virginia tech is supposed to be like uh, like a, they're like in the top tier of teams this year in the ACC. So to have that team that wants to prove itself come into UD arena to play this team with 13,000 people, you know, screaming at them. Um, I'm really, I'm really pumped to uh, see this team play that game. Now, the other two are at Ole Miss and at uh, SMU Ole Miss. Um, they're not supposed to be that good of a team this year, but it's a road game. Fun fact, Dayton is seven and zero all time against Ole Miss. Just throwing that in there. But SMU is also going to be a tough one. They're going to be like maybe top top tier or somewhere near the top middle. I don't know, but they'll be a good team this year uh, out of the American. So I'm excited for Virginia Tech the most, just because I'm going to be at that game. So I have season tickets. So yeah, I'm going to go with Virginia Tech, at least for right now, unless they play Kansas and Orlando. I'm glad you bring up that SMU game because I feel like last year, because they played they played last year, uh, yeah. right when Dayton was possibly making a push for the top 25. I mean, I know Richmond was floating around there for a while after beating Kentucky, uh, and then SLU kind of came up. And I feel like Dayton was was almost on the verge of getting a couple votes. And then they, you know, they lost that game to SMU. Do you feel like there's there's like a little bit of a, a, a bad blood between uh, Dayton amongst Dayton fans? Do you think like that's a game like you really want to kind of stick it to SMU for last year? You always want to beat the teams that beat you, especially if they came in to your house and won. Um, but what's really kind of interesting about this year is compared to last year is no one was in the arena last year for that game. Like no one really knows what the emotion felt like. I barely even remember that game. I know we lost. That was about it. Unless you watch that game on TV or like I watch it on TV, but like, unless you felt the emotion of that game and how big it was, or if it was big, like we hardly remember it. You know, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for, but it's like the God's honest truth. Like I, I barely remember that game, but I could tell you every second of what happened uh, two years ago when Jalen hit the buzzer at St. Louis. And that was two years ago. And that's because like, we felt the emotion sitting at home on our couch, the fans felt the emotion and the energy of the game at Scheifetz arena, but nobody was basically there for the SMU game. So like, is it actually like bad blood or anything? That's, your that's another fan's perspective or question to ask. I bet you someone else will have a different answer, but I don't know. I think I'd speak for a majority of people when I say like, we barely remember that game because last year was so unmemorable. Well, hopefully this year is going to be a lot more memorable and the next four years to come with this, you know, incredibly strong recruiting class. So kind of 
Shifting from Dayton, let's talk some UMass. So, Michael, in the offseason, probably right after the A-10 tournament, it seemed like there were some issues within the locker room uh, of the UMass Minutemen. It seemed like people were kind of maybe drawing lines in the sand based on, you know, their allegiance to Coach Matt McCall. I know there was a lot of talks about him uh, recruiting a lot of those players on that team out of high school. Do you feel like UMass has kind of overcome that problem? Or do you think that might be something that's still lingering within the team? So for the most part, I believe that Coach McCall has probably the best grasp on this roster than probably any tenures. Um, this offseason, definitely, there was a lot of talk really early in it, uh, right after the season, um, when they uh, let go of their assistant coach, uh, Tony Bergeron. And the reason why that was such a big deal is because he'd recruited most of the roster. I think at one point, like seven of the players on the roster from last season, he had played, you know, he had coached or he had, you know, recruited at his prep school. He used to be the head coach at Woodstock in Connecticut. And a lot of those players on the UMass roster came from him and recruited. So he had the pretty much the, the biggest ties on that roster. And um, the first two weeks of the offseason, everyone was wondering who's going to stay, who's going to go. You know, there was rumors about more than, you know, about a bunch of players leaving and it ended up only being two players ended up transferring. Um, Trey Mitchell, the, you know, first team all 10, a 10 player and uh, Ronnie DeGray, who came off a, a fantastic freshman season. Both of them ranked uh, top three in minutes for the for the Minutemen and, uh, you know, Trey Mitchell led them in points and minutes. So um, overcoming you know, their loss, you know, it's been talked about, they're going to try to go out at a committee rather than kind of bringing in like one or two primary scores. That's kind of been the mentality um, going around the team, especially um, in the last few weeks in media availability there. So I, you know, they brought in a lot of experienced players. This is definitely the most experienced team UMass has had. Um, they've been always one of the youngest teams in the A-10 because of tons of turnover and transfers. Um, they last few years, they've had a lot of, uh, departures there and um, basically this team they brought in pretty much one junior two seniors and two grad transfers to replace some graduations there so look this team it, it's 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 gonna you're gonna know in the first few games whether this is a really special team or this is kind of looking like the beginning of the end here I think because they have a really a lot of games in a short amount of time to start the season um, and they're not easy their first think they got six games in the first 13 days to kick off the season you know they got their opener on Tuesday against UMBC America East cakewalk and then you know right on Friday they got to hit the road at Yale for and the Yale's pretty much the favorites in the Ivy League this year so that's not going to be easy for uh the Minutemen there so you know they have brought in a lot of uh, high experienced players so I think they're going to be able to contribute um, on a nightly basis for this team to go far you're going to need to have a consistent you know nine man rotation um, McCall alluded a couple days ago that in his teams that he led back in, you know, with Florida, the 08, you know, nine teams there, he would love to, he had a really great eight man rotation and then a ninth guy who would play and kind of fill in spots there. So kind of narrowing that rotation down is going to be key. I, I would assume in the first week or two, you're going to need to kind of cut that down there um, unless, you know, the guys go in and foul trouble there, but. They got Yale on that Friday. Then right on Monday, they come back home and play Penn State. So like in the first week there, you're going to know like, you know, what this team's made of there. But I think this team probably is the most connected in terms of like in the locker room because they're all on their last run. They all have had all these stops um, at many different schools and they know that this is their last chance to go out and do something special here. So I think they really understand that. Um, more than other veteran teams that's just trying to play through it, you know, because most of these guys didn't expect to come back because of the, co you know, extra year COVID there. So 
um, you know, I, I think this team has the potential to really be a, a top five team in the conference if they all play to their max. I, I really do believe that. But, you know, they were picked ninth in the preseason poll last year and this year. Last year, they ended up finishing fifth despite, you know, the lack of non-conference, you know, great games there. But, uh, well, it'll be a wait and see thing. I think in the first week or two, we'll get a really good vibe of where this team is at. And so you talk about that eight-man rotation. I'm With a rotation that large, I mean, it's, it's it, it'll be hard for, you know, maybe one or two guys to stand out. But I think going into the season, you know, without Trey Mitchell, I think a lot of people were looking at Noah Fernandes to kind of, you know, carry the brunt of, of the scoring for UMass. Do you think that is a, an accurate assessment or do you think his stats are going to be a lot closer in line to what everyone else is on the team is going to be like? That's a great question. You know, I, I really think it's, it's going to be a committee approach. Um, I don't think they are going to rely on one or two guys to put up 15 plus points every night. If this team is really going to make a, a big leap in terms of, you know, going into that next tier, you're going to see about, five to six guys averaging double figures every night. And that's just because not that's not because they're not one great score or anything. I think they're really preaching to be unselfish this year. They don't have an alpha. Like they had Trey Mitchell. He was the guy they ran the offense through him. Running it through Trey Mitchell wasn't necessarily a strength for the team because McCall's system didn't really utilize big men. He has a lot of, you know, four guard, a four out, um, you know, pick and pop type of offense. He, so Trey Mitchell, like technically wasn't a great fit for his system, but they brought in uh, Trent Butcher, a transfer from Penn State, Michael Stedman, who was at Montana um, last year. They also, the, but their most impactful transfer, I think, um, is guard Rich Kelly. He's transferred from Boston College, so he knows Massachusetts area very well. I believe, you know, we, we actually ended up playing. He also had a stop at Quinnipiac before he came to Boston College. And um, I remember McCall telling us that he remembered when we played him, we played Quinnipiac a couple of years ago and Kelly had like a really good game against him. And he was like, yeah, if that could play for us one day, that would be really great. So I think Rich Kelly is going to compete probably for the highest scoring load with Fernandes for the guard position. You're going to see a lot of them play together for most of the game. Then they also have Javon Garcia coming back um, for a second year. There was a lot of hype about him entering the season. Um, and he started off last year fantastic. I think he had 23 points in his debut and 18 in the next. Now, I might have those flip, but he really started out last season on a on fire. And then as we got towards um, A-10 play and they had a couple pauses in there due to, you know, contract chasing and other teams' games getting canceled, that inconsistency, I think, hurt him a little bit in his first season. So getting him kind of in the game in the first kind of, you know, commercial break, the first substitutions, pairing him at the, at the two guard, um, I think is going to be uh, where he's going to see his best production at. Um, he is a great ball handler and he does do really well in the paint, but I think um, you're going to see a lot of two primarily ball handlers on the court for UMass this season. Um, that's just the way their roster is constructed. And, um, you know, it's going to be a committee of scoring. So my, my thoughts are, that's great and all, being unselfish, having, you know, a lot of versatility. But I think there could be a point where they're being too unselfish. And then that could lead to, you know, long possessions, turnovers, and then not getting enough quality shots up. Or not, not enough quality, but passing up quality looks because they think they need to be more unselfish. So that would be my only concern because I don't believe this team has like a, a go-to guy. Like if there's, you know, two minutes to go on a tie game on a hostile environment, like I right now, like there's maybe two or three guys who would probably get the ball in their hands, but like, there's not that one guy, like for a team to have an identity, you're going to need that guy to come emerge from uh, the pile there. And I don't think that 
this team has that identity at the moment. It could come, but again, there's so many guys who need the ball in their hands, not necessarily need the ball in their hands, but will need the ball to show like how they play. So um, again, it's going to be the balance between being unselfish and needing to get um, that bucket when it matters the most for this team to see what kind of identity they establish. And so, you know, you talk about they might be a bit too unselfish. Uh, let's talk about down low. You talk about those two transfers that came in, uh, Trent Buttrick and Michael Stedman. Um, in Matt McCall's game plan, do you think that that four-out scheme is going to have Stedman and Buttrick pretty much never sharing the floor? Uh, are they going to be, you know, primed to kick the ball out to the perimeter rather than, you know, take the quick putback shot? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, they don't have a pure, you know, under the rim center, like a guy who's going to stay down low, you know, stay in the paint, not really go out. But they have pretty much everyone on their team can stretch the floor and kind of knock down, you know, mid-range to three balls there. I think that's pretty unique, especially in the A-10, because the top tier teams all right now kind of are known for having that one key, like rim protector, you know, like uh, Bondavent's got Osunihi, Richmond's got Golden. They have that one kind of anger down low. And, you know, if you throw a ball down there to one of those guys, that primary defender who's going to like body them up, I don't think UMass necessarily has that guy who's going to uh, be able to like handle that load. So I think they're going to struggle against taller teams, you know, when it comes to uh, those that those front court players. So it, it's really a balance of having only how many big men shooting is good enough. You know, you can't have two stretch big guys out there I don't think because again you're just going to leave yourself vulnerable to like or easy transition buckets because you're going to be taking way more three attempts there's always in McCall's system they always talk about getting enough passes per possession I think that's a big uh, that's been a big emphasis over the years getting enough guys with the ball in their hands to be able to create um, for each other there Um, and I think that this team has enough unselfish players that that's not going to be a problem so I think the shot quality is going to be higher than most seasons like I think last year they took a whole bunch of threes and their three-point percentage wasn't very good but even though that wasn't great they still ended up number one in the a10 scoring last year a lot of that you know was trey mitchell but then again they had some other guys to spread before but replacing him is an interesting question because in they they had their biggest wins last year trey mitchell like he didn't ended up having like the best of his games. I think their upset win over rhode island he only had like 12 or 13 points when they play higher tier teams he not, I'm not saying he didn't show up. I mean, he definitely made an impact beyond the score sheet, but I think that was more of a sign when, when they won against those, you know, that big win at URI last year. That was an, a McCall kind of system win. Like the, they played the way that he wanted them to play, and that's why they won. So they're kind of more transitioning towards that. But, you know, honestly, I'm not sure how big of an impact that loss is going to be i think it's going i think leadership wise i think it's i I think they've done a good job of replacing him with solid you know veterans there like noah fernandes is definitely stepped up of being a leader there but you know it's kind of a wait and see thing like i said in the first few weeks we'll know whether this team is going to be really special or just another um you know when being really close games with good teams but beat the teams we're supposed to well it will it's a wait and see thing there for this team so uh you know, looking forward to um to seeing the Minutemen back in action on Tuesday, and uh, I will be uh pretty much at most of the uh, home games there. So uh, we will see. Yeah, and you know, looking at their non-conference schedule, I feel like there is an obvious answer uh for anyone that's that's that might be listening and looking at their at their schedule. Uh, but I, I want to hear from you first. You know, what are some maybe underwritten games on UMass's non-conference schedule that you think you know fans should check out? 
Yeah, I mean, you got the the marquee games, um, the Penn State um, and the Rutgers games. I think those are the, those are both home games um, on, you know, Penn State's on a Monday, uh, coming off the Friday at Yale. So I think if they beat the if they beat Yale, I think that Monday game it's really been tough to get people out some um, games at home on during the week because a lot of the fans are spread throughout uh, the state of Massachusetts, especially um, closer to Boston. So getting them to travel, you know, all the way on the Mass Pike, all the way out to the West, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do on a weekday. You get a lot of better crowds on weekends um, at UMass for sure, um, which is why that Rutgers game, I think probably might be the best attended game of the non-conference slate um, besides maybe the opening game next Tuesday. That Rutgers team, probably the, the hardest challenge with the team, just based on their physicality. I happen to know just a lot about Rutgers basketball in general, being from Jersey and having a really close connection with that staff personally. Um, so I'm, I'm probably I've been hyped for that game for years, honestly. But I think being in the game is one thing, but like they'll have these stretches where other teams will go on like 11 2 runs, they'll call a timeout, and then they come out and it, it, they don't feel like they've made kind of the adjustment they've needed to. Um, some of that is coaching, but I think a lot of it is the physicality of other teams when they've been bullied down. They tend to struggle against, like I said before, very athletic wings and teams with very high front court um, athleticism, like St. Bonaventure, St. Louis, um, even Dayton sometimes. They have, you know, we all know that their bigs are tremendously skilled and they just have, it just bruise you down low. And we just don't have the bodies to compete with that in the front court. Now, we, our wings tend to be more, you know, athletic. Kyra McCrory, I think, is the best example of that. He's going to be playing a lot of three and maybe and four this year um, into those smaller guard looks. But I think that Rutgers game is going to be, that's going to be probably a, a very, very physical game. Um, they're going to probably need to go probably nine deep in that game just because I think they're going to, they're going to have to go physically. You're going to have to go body to body with them to stay in that game uh, physically there. So that's probably the most anticipated game I'm looking forward to. They also have a game um, at Northeastern, I think might be the toughest game in terms of scheduling because they have a, a game on Saturday, uh, December 4th against Harvard. This Harvard team this year is definitely not one of the greatest Harvard teams. I think they were pick six or something like in the mid tier for the, the Ivy League, which is usually way below uh, what they usually are. So I think the UMass would probably be favored in that game, even though they have not um, done fared well against their uh, in-state rival in the last few years. But then that after that Harvard game, they have two days off, and then they have to go at Northeastern. Um, and that Northeastern team this year is actually a pretty talented team. Um, they returned a lot of their players from last year. Um, they also played each other twice last year, so they have a lot of um, tape on each other, and the, all the rosters are relatively similar. Um, so that's they lost last year at Northeastern. I think the first week of the season it was a back-to-back from their uh, first game there. So I think that's definitely the um, on the marquee game there. Besides uh, that, Rutgers there. Looking forward to that. Yeah, it's so a Rutgers. They're playing on November twenty-seventh uh, at home, and Northeastern um, December seventh in Boston. And so you know, before we get onto the Bonnies, I kind of want to open up the discussion to everyone here uh, to, you know, a, a, a topic that we've been talking about uh, pretty much almost every episode of this podcast, but now, you know, with someone from UMass on the pod, I really want to get, you know, kind of your firsthand perspective, Michael, uh, you know, talking about conference realignment during media day, I feel like 
people were talking about um, Coach McCall possibly being asked questions about conference realignment. Uh, there were some who were even disappointed that it wasn't really brought up. Personally, I don't. I don't think you know Coach McCall should really have anything to do with conference realignment. He's just got a. He's got a basketball team, and he's got to win the next game, no matter who who that's against. But do you think UMass is is kind of the first sign that the that the A ten is going to be you know, impacted by this major conference realignment shift that we're going to be seeing over the next five years? I feel like it's inevitable just because, number one, we know the Big East has a TV, has a TV deal expiring. So if they want to make more money, they will expand. But it's just a trickle-down effect from the Big 12's whole deal, you know? Um, you know, we've already seen it, like, the SEC steals from the Big 12. The Big 12 steals from the American. The American steals from Conference USA. Like, it, it, it'll all trickle down. And it's mostly because of football, right? Like, football is, is you know, King Midas. Yeah, right? So, but basketball will have an effect, especially for the American, even though, like, the haul they got from Conference USA was absolute shit. Um I feel like if the A-10 wants to become like their vision of being a premier mid-major basketball-centric conference, then they will absolutely realign. How that looks all depends on what happens over the next, you know, three to four years. I I mean, it's pretty much plain and simple there. Uh, Doesn't mean they're going to kick anyone out, but it could mean adding teams. Gone to our heads, though, if we have to do anything, um, it's most likely either stay put or people leave for whatever reason. Yeah. And so, Jack, I mean, do you think this is necessarily a, a bad thing? I mean, you know, obviously, obviously football is king. I feel like when it comes to TV rights and college sports, uh, what teams do you think could you see maybe entering the A-10? That's an interesting question. And I really think that... Temple and Philly should come back to the A-10. Um, their football team, their football program, ever since they left the conference and set sail for the American, has just gone downhill. Uh, they should kind of follow the UConn model. Go independent in football, everything else come back to the A-10. Uh, I know there's been some discussion of maybe trying to get Wichita State into the Atlantic 10, have them be a geographical partner with St. Louis. Outside of those two, I'm not really sure. I could also see St. Louis and Dayton just because those two are, I consider to be two of the three powerhouses within the conference historically. And especially now with St. Louis announcing plans for that new student center, I could see those two teams going to the Big East. I really do. I wouldn't be surprised about that. I don't know what your take on that is, Chris, since you're more affiliated with Dayton Hoops and I am, but I don't think that's out of the question. Yeah. I mean, we definitely have the makeup to be a, a Big East team. I know the Big East Twitter is very, very uh, divided. They're kind of like, oh yeah, Dayton can come in or they're like, no, what does Dayton offer? Which is, you know, a, which is preposterous. But for Dayton, it's, it's simple. They want to go to the Big East. They absolutely do. That's the move they should make, but it's also not terrible being in the a 10 like we're not in a rush to get out because it is a good basketball conference and they have like all the resources and the makeup to be a top team in the conference every single year you know so and if and if the a 10 wants to keep a team like dayton 
They need to up it up the ante a little bit if they want to be like the Big East. And that could be, like you said, going out and getting Wichita State, uh, going out and getting Temple, uh, bring Temple home. Um, you know, I mean, those are the two main ones off the bat uh, that would actually improve the conference, no doubt. So, yeah, Dayton is obviously gearing up, hopefully, to go to the Big East. But uh, until we see that happen, um, it's we're fine in the 810 for right now. And Dayton kind of reminds me a little bit of Xavier, right? So 10 years ago, Xavier was the cream of the cop of the A-10, right? And yeah. Southwestern Ohio, you know, you got Xavier from in Cincinnati, obviously, and they jumped ship to the Big East. And they've been moderately successful, not as successful as they were in the Atlantic 10, but kind of geographically speaking, same thing along those lines, similar basketball powerhouses in the A-10. That's where I'm thinking Dayton could absolutely compete in the Big East alongside Xavier and all the others. Yeah, I mean, they're also – the schools are also also identified the same way. Like, they're also Catholic. Um, you know, private basketball is king. Uh, men's basketball is king. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, the only thing that can really hurt Dayton's chances is – um, so they need like a three, they need like a three force vote or something like that to not let a team in or to let a team in. So like, I think it's like, I, I, I could be wrong. I remember looking this up at one point, but I kind of forget now it's like, I think Dayton needs like four schools to be like vote no on Dayton getting in in and, the big East you're saying. Yeah. in the big East. So like I could see like Xavier saying no, you know, and then any, and there's also like the theory of like the Catholic seven, like they all kind of do the same thing. Um, but Dayton's also Catholic. So like, do you go against them? You know, it, it, it it's a really weird situation. Um, but I mean, there really isn't one right now until there is one. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about, you know, people potentially leaving, I think, I think Dayton going to the big East, like you said, they have a lot to offer for the Big East. I mean, no hate to Big East Twitter. I think there's plenty of great, great people on there. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Big East myself. I think anyone who doesn't feel like Dayton has a lot to offer is really underselling this program. Um, and honestly, it probably hasn't been watching a lot of Dayton hoops. But in terms of people leaving the A-10, I think right now, if someone had to leave the A-10 right now, I think because of football – It'd be UMass. So, Michael, have you heard any rumblings about a potential, you know, FBS move? I mean, they're in the FBS now, but, you know, a move to a permanent FBS conference? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Um, I I mean, it all starts with football. You know, they UMass, they they transitioned from the FCS to to the FBS uh, back in 20, I want to say 14, 15 around there. And, um, you know, they initially were in the MAC conference for, you know, a little time there. And, uh, you know, the Mac wanted them to uh, joining for all sports and UMass said, no, we're in the A-10 for basketball. It's a high, way higher league. And uh, UMass, you know, left the Mac for football only and they became independents and they've been trying to find a home ever since. And they're on their second second coach now in their FBS era. And uh, this has probably been the ugliest, crappiest. I don't know what I could say on this, but there's some words I would probably use. I'd describe UMass football, but it, it's a dumpster fire on top of a dumpster fire. Um, they're on the brink. I, I, I wouldn't say of extinction because that's, that's the wrong word because there's two different directions you can go. You can go to the FCS like 
pretty much what like every other A10 school is in football that which you know the ones they have for there and um, you know up that budget in basketball hockey because you know it's coming off the national championship and hockey there so it's not like you know it, it, it would be the worst thing in the world uh, to do that and um, they can just be satisfied and playing high level football in the FCS and competing for championships there but it seems like the administration has ruled that out at any cost of, of moving down so the question is now getting into a conference. Um, they can't sustain being independent anymore from a recruiting perspective and just uh, donor base. They're fed up uh, with everything going on. And uh, I, I do believe that they're looking for a football only uh, move there. I don't believe that they're looking what they're interested in leaving the A-10 at all um, for any sports at all. I think they're really happy for their hoops and basketball and the A-10. Um, they are happy with uh you know the regionality having um uri nearby the philly teams it's not a terrible location they have to take some flights down you know the virginia's the, the dayton's and st louis's but you know you, when you have them at home you get some really good crowds so moving um out of the a10 for umass especially for basketball i think is extremely unlikely at this point i think the only thing that happens with them is they move um conference um conference usa's um, still seems to need needing some people and there's been rumblings that uh, they're looking for um, teams there and I, I haven't really heard much about UMass specifically on that front I've heard from you know Liberty UConn and all those other independent teams that we play a lot but it, it seems to be that if they don't get into a conference here um, I don't think much changes from their uh, from the A10 perspective I think they're happy where they are um, and there are other sports they compete, um, you know, with soccer, uh, women's lacrosse, um, you know, swimming and all those. I think they compete by fairly well um, year to year in those. So, you know, to give you a straight answer, I, I, I would think it would be very, very unlikely that moving um, out of the A-10 unless they moved up a league in basketball, um, because I think they view themselves higher than other people do, um, whether that's right or wrong, as you know, that's for the public to decide there. But you know, they are a flagship institution. They have a high endowment, um, very high student enrollment. Um, so I think being in the A-10 competitively for the other sports besides football makes sense. And I think they're just looking to go football only um, in their conference of choice right now. In all this talk of conference realignment, I, I, I hope that the A-10 doesn't lose its some of its top talent, which I consider UMass to be. Uh, but we'll be covering all that conference realignment as these stories develop over the course of the season, over the next couple of years. Uh, so make sure you, you know, check out A10talk.com, A10talk podcast. Uh, but finally, for our last segment of the night, uh, Jack, let's talk about the big boys. Uh, you know, unanimous, you know, vote to win the Atlantic 10, uh, 23 in the AP top 25, St. Bonaventure. You know, they enter this season uh, with some very high expectations. Some of the highest expectations I've seen from an A-10 team in a long time, uh, with all five starters returning from last year and some really high-level talent on this roster. Do you think this is a lot of pressure for this team? It is a lot of pressure and is unfamiliar territory for the State Bonaventure Bonnies this year. And what's interesting is – the starting five returns, they're the only team, only tournament team outside of UCLA to return all five starters this year. And I think based on that experience from last year, the crazy COVID year that they had, and people sometimes forget that 
Lofton, Shoon, and Welch were freshmen when the Bonnies lost to St. Louis in the Atlantic 10 championship game in 2019. So these guys have some experience, and you cannot bet against experience. And I think they're going to be able to withstand the pressure. Uh, a great a great early season event is the Charleston Classic against Boise State opening game in two weeks. We'll see what they can do there. I think they should win. They're the favorites to win that tournament. Uh, but, but we'll just have to see. I, I really do think that they should win the Atlantic 10 championship once again. They have the talent. They brought in some transfers off the bench, some quality Division One transfers. So we'll just have to see. Yeah, and so you mentioned experience. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same camp. I don't really think anything can beat experience. And especially when, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these other A-10 programs, they've brought – I feel like this is a big year for, for bringing a lot of transfers, a lot of strong recruiting classes, but you know, with those great new additions comes a lot more time needed to prepare for the season. And so do you think the Bonnies, you know, kind of just were ready to hit the ground running and just, and just get right into their first game on uh, on Tuesday. I think they're going to be ready to rock and roll against Sienna on Tuesday. Uh, and even coach Schmidt said this, this off season, he said there was with all the transfer portal and everybody moving Across the country, thousands of players were in the transfer portal this offseason, as you know. And Coach Schmidt said not a single discussion about any of these five guys leaving ever took place. They were committed to Bonaventure. They want to be there, and they want to win. They want to go on a run because they feel as if they have something special. And so does the brown and white faithful. I mean, everybody I've talked to over the last six months cannot stop talking about the Bonnies. I mean, I saw a guy down here in New York City a couple months ago. He saw I had a Bonaventure backpack on, and he stopped me on the street, told me how excited he was for the season, and he just represents everybody that is a Bonnies fan across the country. I mean, everybody's just so excited. And so, you know, something definitely to be excited for is seeing, you know, some of these some of these returning players interact with some very strong, in my opinion, incoming transfers. So to you, uh, what does what does the average Bonnie's rotation look like? I think they're going to go eight deep. I mean, Schmidt's never played a deep bench before. I mean, last year they were last in the country in bench minutes, and he did have a couple of pieces that he could have put in at some points. But I really do think it's going to be an eight-man rotation, maybe a nine-man rotation. Even tonight against Alfred in the exhibition game, a lot of the newcomers got to see some action. Uh, one guy you should probably watch out for is Quandry Adams. Uh, he transferred in from Wake Forest. Uh, he's not really a scoring threat. He's more so going to be a facilitator when Lofton's not in the game, which is rare because Lofton was one of the nation's leaders in percentage minutes played last season. But I do like Adams to come in and try and give Lofton a breather, especially in the early going this year. Now you got to remember last year, Bonaventure only played 16 games. And against LSU in the NCAA tournament, they all looked gas. They looked flat-footed. They didn't have their A game. And so I would hope, I would hope that Schmidt takes his foot off the gas a little bit in the early going in the non-conference in games against Sienna, Canisius, or Coppin State, or Loyola. Those games that Bonaventure should and will win because they are the superior opponent. I would love to see Quadri Adams get a little experience with that. Uh, another guy that I'm really liking too is Linton Brown. He's a redshirt sophomore. He's a JUCO transfer, and he shot almost 50% from three during his sophomore season uh, last year. So he's got the hot hand. Uh, Bonaventure needs a good shooter off the bench, and perhaps he can come in 
and get a little pick and pop action going. And then another guy I'm really high on, and he had a terrific game against Alfred in the exhibition, is Abdul Kareem Kulubili. And uh, I'm really starting to petition just to call him cool for short because he's got a nice, cool little jumper. He's six foot nine. He's a redshirt sophomore, came in from Pittsburgh, and he started 20 of 22 games as a Pitt Panther as a sophomore a year ago. So he has experience. And where I think he's going to be really viable is when he comes in off the bench, he could play for Shun, or he could play the four with Shun alongside him at the five. And what's crazy is <laughs> Kalubi is a great shot blocker too. So Shun's one of the best in the country in blocking shots, but now you add in cool. I mean, they're almost the twin towers down low and an already defensive, an already great defensive team just got better in that addition. So do you think, do you think Shun is going to, you know, kind of, kind of share the floor with pool or do you think it's going to be kind of, they're going to be kicking a lot, kicking out a lot to, uh, you know, Jaron Holmes and, uh, and Kyle Lofton. I think it depends on the matchup. Uh, it, if they're playing a bigger school like LSU last year, Bonaventure just didn't have the size. The only size they had was Shun and you have Jalen Attaway who's six, five playing the four. And now you have Koulibaly who has played against power five opponents in his time at Pittsburgh you can slot him at the four and perhaps you rotate in Lofton. Well, well, Lofton's not going to leave the floor because he's the floor general, one of the best point guards in the country. But you can even two and three, you could rotate them out Attaway, Welch, and Holmes. And that just provides more depth, more fresh legs. And if you have fresher legs, that's when shots start to fall. It's all about stamina with shooting, right? So I really think he's going to be a very nice addition to the 21-22 St. Bonaventure Bonnies. Yeah, and so you talk about that eight-man rotation. It seems like there's going to be a lot of talent spread across the floor. The workload is going to be spread evenly. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really seem like load management is going to be a problem for this Bonnie's team. But, uh, you know, in terms of minutes, I think the most entertaining minutes uh, of Bonnie's season are going to be when a Shuna Shuni is on the floor. I mean, is there anybody that could possibly, you know, get in the way of a Shun being named unanimous A-10 player of the year? I mean, if unless one of his teammates <laughs> kind of, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Lofton did either. I mean, Lofton is a nominee for the Bob Cousy Award, which is the best point guard in the country. And Shun is a nominee for the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Award, which is the best center in the country. So I could see either one of those guys winning eight ten player of the year. But uh, I do digress because I do think Shun is by far the most important player on the team. They're a different team when he's in the game. And that's why the most important key is to make sure he does not get into foul trouble early. Uh, ideally, in my opinion, if Shun can play the first solid eight minutes of the first half, get to the under 12 timeout, get cool in there, give him a breather, right? Have cool go and play the five, give him three, four minutes off and Shun's right back in for the home stretch of the first half. That would be my ideal situation, ideal scenario. And I also think Shun does not need to play more than 30 32 minutes a game. Now that they have some impact transfers coming off the bench, they've got some experience, right? So we'll just have to see, but Shun is by far the most important player because he's a defensive anchor. This team is so good defensively. In last year, what was great about Lofton, Welch, Holmes, and Attaway is they could all rotate one through four. They could switch on ball. They could switch off ball very easily. And then he had Shun anchor and just swatting everything in plain sight could he be player of the year absolutely but don't be surprised if his teammate beat him out too and so after 
you know, this expected player of the year, uh, whether or not him or Lofton gets it, I mean, is, is a, you know, putting his name into the NBA draft almost inevitable? I would think so. I mean, he's got a seven foot eight inch wingspan, and scouts have to love that. I know the Indiana Pacers and the New York Knicks have attended a practice at the Riley Center in recent weeks, and that's probably the biggest draw is how good he is defensively. Now, I have been told that scouts said to him in the offseason that he needs to work on his offense a little bit. And in tonight's game against Alford in the exhibition game, it seemed as if his offensive repertoire has expanded a little bit. He had a great little move on the left block, faked to his left, went back to his right, and finished with the left hand beautifully. And I would love to see more of that. Now, granted, yes, Alfred's Division Three. It's just a dress rehearsal. The real deal doesn't start until Tuesday night against Siena. The return of the Franciscan Cup between the two in-state rivals. Uh, but I would also like to see him shoot more from the elbow. Jumpers there. He he does have that jumper. Um, and, uh, that just comes down to confidence. Now I don't think he's going to be shooting anywhere outside the arc. I don't know if he's there yet. And I'm sure if he does want to have a tremendous success at the next level, he will need to develop an outside shot just because that's where the pro game is. Uh, but I don't see why he's not a second round pick in next year's draft. And I also could see Lofton potentially being a draft pick as well. Yeah, I mean, you bring up, you know, him working on different parts of his game. I mean, it's almost like Giannis. Um, you know, Ashun, Ashun's a big guy, and he's he's probably as close to a traditional center like you would see, you know, maybe 20 years ago, uh, as you can see in the college game today. And like I was saying with Chris, I mean, the center in, you know, a little bit in college basketball, but mostly in the NBA, has kind of just turned into a stretch four position. And so it's, it's almost like how people were saying, you know, Giannis, if Giannis can work on his jump shot, I mean, there's no stopping him. I mean, if, if so if, if Oshun can, you know, work on his offense and be that much more of an all-around player, I mean, I, I, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be on an NBA roster. And, and, that's, and that's one of my keys to the season's success is Shun to continue to develop his offensive game. And the other key is I think people forget how poorly Kyle Lofton shot from beyond the arc. His freshman season, 2018-2019, Lofton shot 33% from outside the air. His sophomore year, it was 33.6. Those are pretty respectable numbers. You're making one out of every three. Not bad. We'll take it. Last year, those numbers dipped to 24%. And there are some games where he would just go stone cold. Now, Lofton has said that he's a shooter over this past offseason. He's regained his confidence, and he's not afraid to pull the trigger. But if Bonaventure is really going to make – a real deep run in the NCAA tournament, Lofton's got to be more of a consistent outside threat. That was probably one of the most in-depth previews I think we've gotten on this podcast so far. And honestly, you know, as a Fordham fan, I'm kind of glad Fordham's not expected to do much this year because if I was a, a Richmond or a SLU or a Dayton, I'd honestly be terrified of this Bonnie's team, just, just the way you've been describing it. But before they can get in the conference play, uh, what, what is the number one non-conference game that you're going to be looking forward to with the Bonnies? Well, I do have the good fortune that I will be in Charleston in two weeks, but I know I've already discussed that. The biggest game on the calendar, in my opinion, is December 11th, Saturday afternoon against the Connecticut Huskies. And former Rhode Island coach Danny Hurley, who knows the Bonnies well, will have his Huskies ready to take on the Bonnies at the Prudential Center. Yeah, you know, right now, I mean, this could obviously change uh, – this could really change, you know, up until December 11th, but, you know, 
Bonnie's are 23rd in the AP poll right now, and UConn is 24th in the AP poll right now. So two very close schools. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of attention surrounding UConn this year. Uh, it's their first year back in the Big East. I think that was something that people have been looking forward to for a long time, myself included. Um, and so I think if, if the Bonnies can come in and kind of, you know, ran on their parade, I think that'd be a huge statement win that would carry all the way to Selection Sunday. Absolutely. And, um, and that's the only game that Bonaventure plays in the New York metro area. And there's a lot of brown and white guys, a lot of alumni down here in New York City. And I, I would be stunned. I would be absolutely stunned if the Prudential Center on December 11th does not consist of a majority of Bonnie's fans. That's, a, that's honestly kind of a hot take, though, because, you know, I, I totally agree that that the Bonnies have a great contingency in the you know New York metro area, but so does UConn. I mean, do you think it's going to be? I mean, we could we could definitely see a, a an almost a sellout game. I mean, do you think it's going to be you know Bonnies fans, UConn fans, kind of jockeying for those seats? Hey, I could definitely see that. You know, I and I have to go back ten years ago in the 2012 NCAA tournament down in Nashville, Tennessee, when Andrew Nicholson led the Bonnies to play Florida State. Bonaventure fans were dominating everybody else there. Florida State, and I can't remember the other two teams off the top of my head were there, but Bonaventure fans outnumbered them, it, it, almost four to one. And, of course, in 2018 when they flew down to Dallas, same thing. So the Bonnies, the Bonnies travel well, too. Yes, geographically, UConn has a presence in New York City, but here's the important thing to this is everybody, everybody around Bonaventure or Bonaventure alums, former players, everybody knows that Bonaventure basketball is huge this year. It, this is the year for Bo the Bonnies. UConn, they've had their moments. UConn's had time in the Big East. They had Jim Calhoun. They had Ray Allen. They had Kemba Walker. They had Shabazz Napier. The last time the Bonnies were ranked was 1971, when George Harrison's My Sweet Lord was the number one song. So that's why I think that Bonaventure fans will really show up at the Prudential Center in December is because everybody knows that this is our year. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's been a long time coming, but hopefully, you know, luckily the 2021 season is, you know, just four days away. A lot of exciting stuff. I mean, the Bonnies are the team to watch. They're the team to beat in the Atlantic 10. So, Jack, thank you once again. I mean, that was probably one of the best previews we've gotten on this podcast so far. And uh, that looks like it'll, it'll wrap it up for us uh, tonight on the A10 Talk podcast. Once again, thanks to Chris Pyle and Michael Berglund. I know they had to dip. But, you know, for uh, Jack Milko, I'm your host, Sam Basil, and we'll see you next week, guys.